Welcome to the Ninja Lane Podcast. In this episode, we look at the results of the MOA 2013 competition, we take a look at the new 780 classifier from EVGA, and speculate on the price drop from Microsoft and how tablets are changing. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia, and with me today, I have Darren McCain. Dennis, I was reading one of your recent reviews on the MSI Empower motherboard. Great review, by the way. Oh, thank you. And I saw that you ended up using that motherboard in the MOA qualifiers or the, the finals? That was the semifinals, and it was actually the Empower Max. Oh, that's right. The one with the fancy yellow M, like the uh, Metro last light symbol. Yeah, or the recognizer from Tron, if you can go back that far. That's right, Tron. <laughs> so the Empower Max that I used for the semifinals was actually a prize that I won from the qualifying round. And how did you win it? I won it by submitting scores before the halfway point, which was how MSI and Hardware Bot determined who would be eligible to win a prize. So a great opportunity to plug that you don't have to win or even be in the top three in your region and maybe win a motherboard anyway. Right. Hardware Bot works in strange ways in this regard because you get competition points for participating in the competition. Right. Some people enter these competitions just for the prizes. And other people, like myself, enter to move on to the next round or to win the thing and get some fame and fortune. Now, hold on for a second. Let's step back and explain what is MOA for the folks that haven't been following our coverage. MOA is the MSI Master Overclocking Arena, which, as the name suggests, is an MSI-sponsored overclocking competition to highlight and showcase some of their overclocking products, features, and capabilities. Fantastic. So that means you have to use MSI products. Obviously. And you're competing using some very specific benchmarks, if I recall. Yep. The MSI and HardwareBot both determine which benchmarks will be allowed. For MOA 2013, They in the A class, which is the one that I competed in, they chose Firestrike Extreme, uh, Cinebench, and SuperPi 32M. Fantastic. Now, the motherboard review, very solid, and I would point people to that in the show notes. But what I'm curious about is, how did the qualifiers end up? Well, before we get to that, I wanted to congratulate the top 15 qualifiers from the semifinals and the qualifying round. Good luck in Taipei. In the Americas region, which is the region I was competing in, we have the top seed qualifier, which was Mike CDM. And I ended up in fifth place. So Mike is moving on to Taipei to represent this region. And with you finishing fifth... Uh, What did Mike do differently? What's he using? Well, he was using, which was surprising to me, a 7970 Lightning. What? No Titan? Nope, no Titan. If you were a fifth, so walk us through, uh, you know, what is the difference in the hardware? I'm I'm really surprised the Titan is not the top dog. Well, the Titan is the top dog. For Firestrike Extreme, we we have Grendel, who was using a GTX Titan. And he actually netted the top score in Firestrike Extreme. Now, Mike was able to surpass him by scoring better in Cinebench and in SuperPi 32M. So Mike made up the points with uh, processor-based tests as opposed to the GPU-based tests. Exactly. And he was submitting scores all the way up till the end. I was really surprised. Now, with Firestrike Extreme, he was fourth in the 7970 series with a top overclock of 1650 megahertz on the core with 1900 megahertz on the memory. 
for a 7970. That's pretty insane. That is really rocking. I'd like to see our Lightning get some of those scores, <laughs> to be honest. But uh, he's probably doing some pretty massive uh, cooling effort on that then. The LN2 or something even more extreme? No, no, just LN2. 7970 has a cold bug issue. And actually, when you're overclocking it at those frequencies, it tends to blank the screen. So you almost break out the stopwatch because the benchmark's still running. But you break out the stopwatch so that you can cool it down and bring the screen back when it's over. Wow, that's interesting to note. Now, if the top finisher used a Titan, but the top regional finisher didn't, what did you use? Ooh, well, I used a GTX 650 Tie Boost. What? (laughs) That's not even the top dog. Yeah, well, as we mentioned before, competing in the MOA is kind of expensive yes and to be competitive you could use the same hardware you used last year and basically place so that you could get into the semifinals and that's exactly what i did so i pulled out my 3930k and the lightning card and basically netted some scores to get myself into the semifinals now i looked at my fellow competitors mike cdm being one gunslinger being one and then we also have splave all those guys have titan scores posted on hardware bot sure and i don't have a titan i didn't really want to spend the thousand dollars to be competitive in this competition and i knew that my 7970 lightning would not run 1600 megahertz so instead of putting a lot of effort into the benchmark i ran the top video card for the class b competition on my haswell based system and basically just kind of put in a score, and ironically got a gold cup for it. Well, that sounds pretty good, and we all like to get gold cups, but I know you've got a 7970 Lightning. Yeah, and I was planning to use that. And I know you've got a Haswell. Well, yeah, I had to. A 4770K, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that was the process requirement for Class A. People with Lightnings and Haswell scored better than you, so why didn't you use yours? I really didn't think that I would be able to run the 1600 megahertz that would be required to be competitive with the Titan cards. And I was really anticipating everybody to be running Titans. Come to, you know, my surprise, if you will, the two guys from North America both use 7970 Lightnings. Extremely high clock 7970 Lightnings. Right. The person who placed fourth in 3D Mark Extreme used a Titan, and it just wasn't overclocked as much. And the guy with the top score used a Titan that was clocked a little bit higher. I know we've talked a little bit about how much of a commitment you had last year to MOA, and that this year you were dialing it back. And I know you ended up in fifth place, but what I'm wondering is, if you had to do it again, what would you do differently? That is a very good question, because if I really wanted to go to MOA, I had hardware enough that I, if I would have bought the Titan... And just a meager overclock and maybe another Haswell processor. So I had a second one to bin. I probably could have placed really well. But one of the rules in the MOA this year was that, and this is actually some an extension of what happened last year, was they were only allowing one person per country per region to go. Okay. So there's this crazy loophole where If Mike CDM, for instance, he placed first, say I placed second, and then some guy from Brazil and some guy from Canada placed third and fourth, it would be Mike 
and then the guy from Brazil, and then the guy from Canada. I wouldn't be able to go. Oh, so beat Mike CDM or bust. Right. So it really became a country competition encased within a region. You know, it's kind of a strange way of looking at it. And these crazy loopholes where, you know, somebody could place fourth and still go because everybody within their country was in the first four spots. Partially, that was one reason that I didn't have as much enthusiasm this time around. And I think a lot of the other qualifiers in the Americas region felt the same way. And that's why they didn't submit scores at all. You know, there was no prizes on the line and they really had to beat everybody else in their country to, to go. Well, maybe you'll end up winning another motherboard for competing. And in the meantime, we can all support Mike CDM. Go Mike. Go Mike. Dennis, on Facebook, you posted a rather intriguing picture of an EGA video card and challenged us to guess what it was. Oh, yes. That, uh, they got quite a, a wide variety of responses. The funny thing was the name of the particular card was in the photo. You just had to zoom in on it. Very sneaky. Yeah. Well, I can cheat because I'm looking at it on the bench right now. And I think it's maybe time to reveal what that card is that you're working on. Yeah, that is the EVGA 780 Classified. Nice. I know we've talked about the Classified before, particularly when we talk about the Lightning. But the Classified is kind of the top dog, right? That would be an understatement. In the world of video cards, you have the standard reference designs that are hot-clocked, and right. then you have these custom boards, like the Classified and the Lightnings, and sometimes um, Ares cards from Asus. But all of these are using... The standard GPU and a very custom PCB. And usually they add larger VRMs, they tweak the memory a bit, they add different power circuits and modify the BIOS. Also, overclockers like us can take this card and break records with it. Well, I noticed that the classified is much larger than the regular 780s that I've been seeing, particularly the other EVGA 780, the GTX. Well, the card itself is about an inch and a half taller. And that's to allow room for the larger VRM. Now, you reviewed the GTX 770, right. which is a reference card that was hot-clocked. That is your standard height video card. Yeah, that's what the form factor calls for. Well, the heat sinks look a lot similar, but the size is dramatically different. You know, I think it shows in the comparison photos that you've been taking. Yes, I did take a picture of both cars side-by-side side so that you could get a scale. Because if you look at this card all by itself, it looks a lot like any other EVGA cooler or card with an ACX cooler on it, like the 770 that you reviewed. Right. Now, this one is an extra inch and a half taller to make room for the VRM. The cooler was enlarged to fit that card. And unlike some of the MSI designs, the fingers for the SLI bridges are also pushed up higher. So you can use those solid bridges across the top when you get more of these for SLI. Very nice. With the 780 classified being, well the pinnacle of design, why wouldn't you just buy these right at release? Well, <laughs> it's a good question, and it's because they aren't available for the most part. When the 780 first comes out, most of the cars that are sold are reference designs direct from NVIDIA with the stock coolers on them. Companies like EVGA that have a custom cooler, they might swap that cooler on there and give it a nice little overclock, making it a hot clock card, but these are all reference design PCBs. 
that allows the companies to get the products out in the hands of people that want to buy them. Sure. It also gives them time to start refining what they want to do with the extra designs, like classified. For instance, when GTX Titan was released, Kingpin and Tin in the EVGA labs, they were soldering on EVGA Untouchables, which were the external VRM boards. Right. They were soldering those onto the Titan reference boards and overclocking the snot out of those things. And that was really the segue for how the classified was being built because the VRMs are about the same size. And that way they can tune it with the EV bot and basically say, okay, well, we're going to put an Untouchables on this board and make it one PCB so that somebody that buys this card can go and overclock it on the weekends, put their stock cooler back on, stick it in the system and game all week and do the same thing next weekend. We had some pretty good guesses on your picture. I know somebody mentioned the 680 classified, but the closest guess was the 780, was it the OCX, the super clock edition? Yeah, the super clock edition. The super clock edition sounds pretty good. Why would I spend the extra money on the classified? Well, there's a, quite a few reasons that you would want to buy the classified, and it's really how you're going to use the card. For instance, on the classified, you have two BIOSes. So you can have your LN2 BIOS, and you can also have your standard BIOS that is approved by NVIDIA. Oh, that's nice. The 780 classified also comes with an EV bot connector, which is the one connector that made the big stink with the GTX 680 classified in the previous edition, where NVIDIA said, no, you can't sell it with that connector on there anymore because it breaks our overclocking rules. Interesting. And also on the classified, this is more for LN2 guys, we have some status lights and also voltage test points. So you can plug in voltage leads, plug it into your your digital multimeter, and as you're overclocking, you can determine what the voltages are during the different benchmarks. Well, that sounds pretty impressive. So what are your first impressions? How does it perform? I'm going to say this card performs better than expected. For instance, in the Kingpin forums, Kingpin was uh, overclocking this card to 1400 megahertz on air. And that is quite a feat considering that the standard clock is well, the standard clock for the 780 is around 900 megahertz, and the classified is almost at 1,000 at 990. Wow, so that's a pretty big bump, and that, that's on air, you say? That's on air. That's cranking the, the fans up all the way and basically running Precision X all the way up to 1,400. In my test, I was only able to get it to 1,370, and the reason why was because I was hitting the power limiter, and on the stock... 780, you have 100% power limit, and the stock one is at 70, and then for overclocking purposes, you can crank that up to 100. And that will allow a certain amount of power to go into the turbo for the Boost 2.0, and that's where you get your turbo boost. So if you can keep the GPU cool, it will run faster. So what you're saying is if you switch over to LN2, who knows where this thing could land? Exactly. Now, in my case, I had to switch over to the secondary BIOS, which allowed the power limiter to run up to 115%. And at that point, I could hit 1370 before it started to actually degrade to the point where I wasn't getting any more performance out of it, even though the clock was higher. Well, that's all very impressive. And I can see now why that justifies the additional cost, at least for the bleeding edge, the competitive guys. A very impressive card. I look forward to seeing how it turns out. Darren, did you see the news from Microsoft lately? 
what news? <laughs> they dropped the prices on the Surface RT and Surface Pro. Okay, now I knew they were dropping the price of the RT. I'd seen that, but they dropped the Pro too. They dropped a hundred bucks off the Pro, making wow. it like seven hundred bucks or something like that. So now is that just a product cycle thing? It's it's an old product, or is that a reflection of the market? I think it's a little bit of both. Balmer claimed that they made too many Windows RT machines, and they weren't selling because they really weren't promoting Windows RT. It Windows didn't 8 have RT. anything to do with the fact that no one wanted them. Uh, <laughs> I am. We know that that's actually the case, but you know Microsoft's trying to be very PR about it, so they're saying, "Oh, well, we made too many of them." And it's like, uh, yeah, nobody wanted them. Sure, okay, supply and demand. I got gotcha. you. Yep. Now the Surface Pro, which is the one that runs Windows 8 Pro, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like a slate machine. The price drop on that is a little bit surprising, but considering that nobody really bought it, I'm not surprised either. Now, you know, I was a huge fan of the Windows 8 Pro tablets, but cost-wise, if that's a word, they were yeah. they were a little out of my budget. I've been watching for a price drop. I don't know if 100's enough though. What was it? They were at, they started selling at Eight ninety nine or nine ninety nine or something like that. That was the original cost of the Surface Pro. Yeah, it was right around a thousand for the for the good one, the one twenty eight. Right, and that was comparable to my ASUS Slate. But I was looking at the connectivity on that machine, and it was horrible. I mean, you had like one USB port and a video out, and that was pretty much it. At least on my Slate, I have a couple of USB ports. I have HDMI. I have audio. I have an S card reader. <laughs> Well, at least all the usual toys. And you know, I have uh, several of the Transformers, the Asus Transformers at my place. Right. I have a couple of those as well. And I've always been a big fan. So I had kind of been watching to see if there was going to be a Surface Pro Transformer style tablet where I could get you know, that nice detachable tablet and when I needed it, have that base module with all the extra ports and the keyboard. Right. Well, they are changing the way that the tablet is perceived, I think. For instance, Asus, their new generation tablet, which is to compete with the Surface Pro, is like a convertible. And it's hard to tell from the picture, but I think it's one of those that the screen spins around, or maybe it has two screens, I'm not really sure, but it's a 1080p tablet with an attached keyboard, so it's almost like an Ultrabook. Yeah, that's kind of in response to, I think, the Lenovs that had the, the rotating screens that have been fairly popular. Right, well, that was the original tablet back in the day of you know, what was it, 2000 or XP that, you know, they wanted to create that tablet OS Mm -hmm. and it just never took off because nobody cared. Now, two screens, that's kind of intriguing. That reminds me of that poor failed uh, Microsoft project was a courier, right? I think that was the name. I'm not placing it right now, but interesting enough, Acer has a tablet device, which is two screens. The bottom screen can be activated as a keyboard while you're tableting on the top screen, touch screens on both of them, or you can run dual screen tablet, basically, which is kind of strange. And I kind of thought it was really dumb because I'd like to have a tactile keyboard. Right. But you can't deny having two screens that you can play on that yeah. are touchable. It sounds like that has a lot of potential if it's not just a gimmick. But how does a tablet like that compete with like the iPad? You know, and that is kind of a sore spot with me because, you know, I'm a hardware reviewer, right? Right. And I know that the iPad is kind of the pinnacle touch device from Apple. Well, at least it's perceived in the market that way. Some of us would argue that point. Right. But the hardware, in terms of hardware on the iPad, it's really, it's a mobile device. It's kind of a beefed up iPhone. Sure. Well, 
you can't compare that to a Surface Pro, or you can't compare that to my Asus Slate. Okay. The hardware is completely different. Now, it's not necessarily the OS that's different, but in my Slate, I have a Core i5. In the Surface Pro, you have an Ivy Bridge Core i5. In some of the other tablets we just mentioned, those were the Ivy Bridge Core i5, the third generation. That is designed to be like a laptop, you know, a very powerful machine that you can run Photoshop on, you can browse real websites with. Whereas with the iPad, it has a little bit of power, but it's still a mobile device reading mobile web pages, mobile applications. It's really in the league of a transformer, like the ones that you have at your house. Right, right. My Tigra-based uh, tablets. Right. And which is a big version of a phone that you can't make cellular calls on. Well, but, it is definitely frustrating some of the compatibility issues, especially with the Microsoft products. Right. Well, and this is the big issue, is that when you compare a Slate device with an iPad, all the negatives about it are going to be price. Yes. And, and that's that's the big stink, is that... And why they made a Windows RT device to compete with the iPad, because they knew that the hardware architecture was different. But when you compare the Surface Pro against an iPad, the price is going to be different. But they never make mention of why the price is different. You know, they say, oh, well, the screen resolution's different size, and you have less storage space. And they basically are pimping the iPad because it has better specs. But only the important specs that people really care about because they don't understand that the processor is faster. Well, that's the only time that the Apple iPad looks good in price in comparison. That's true. You try to compare it to, uh, you know, even a transformer, for example, and it, yeah, it's not really the same. I mean, it's a very expensive product. But then you compare it to, you know, say the Asus Vivo tab, for example, which is uh, one of the the Windows 8-based tablets that I've been looking at. And suddenly the iPad is uh, pretty affordable. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so is a transformer like, you know, the TF700 that I have. Right, right. The Infinities and such. And those are great tablets too, but they don't run Windows. No, they don't. And that is where a Slate device comes in. A lot of companies make them. For instance, HP has their business edition Slate tablets, but those are all Atom processors. And we've used netbooks before with Atoms and... Yes, it runs Windows. It might open a Word document, but there really isn't a lot of power there. Right. You really need the x86 architecture to be fully compatible. And, and I think that's that's the major selling point for those tablets, really, is compatibility. Exactly. And why they're marketed toward the enterprise, because these are going to be the executives carrying these devices around to different meetings and making notes. And they're not creating... PowerPoint presentations. They're not creating images and web pages and programming documents and stuff. Yeah, but when you're talking about a price point on some of the tablets that we've talked about, I mean, we're really talking it could be $1,500, $1,700 tablet. I mean, that's a lot of Transformers. Yeah, that is. And it's a very niche market. And I think that's another reason why the Surface Pro got a price drop. And admittedly, the Surface Pro is one of the cheaper slate style tablets that you can buy mm-hmm. i was checking out amazon which i can put a link in the show notes for this there are basically three companies that make slate style tablets asus which is the the connected one now so it's not really a full tablet we have samsung and we have acer and all of those companies have been known for their netbooks ultrabooks also you know any sort of computing device now, hold on, didn't Acer trash Windows 8 and make a big stink about 
how the Surface Pro was uh, a failure not too long ago. I thought they did. Yeah, they were making a big stink out of it because they were taking away sales. But with Microsoft selling hardware, they're taking away from hardware sales from manufacturers that specialize in hardware. I guess that makes sense. But if what I'm hearing is true, they didn't really steal a lot of the sales. No, they didn't. And looking at the hardware aspect of it, I can see why. Because all of the Slate-style devices that are running Core i5s are all 1080p tablets. They all use the same processor. They all have the same amount of memory. They also have the same storage options, which tells me that there's one company out there making these slate devices and white boxing it to these three companies that want to sell them. Interesting. But I guess that makes sense. If there's not a big demand, there's not going to be a lot of people making them. Nope. And you might as well buy one, add your own accessories and sell it as your own. For instance, right now, I really like the Samsung devices and there's like six different ones that have kind of the same name, but you know, there's minute changes like that. It has more system memory or a larger SSD, but they're all Bluetooth style keyboards that you can attach, which is a lot like my Asus Slate that I like so much. Right. Now the Acer device has a dock, which is this really big, ugly thing that, that slides the tablet into. At that point, you can have a full keyboard that you could use on a plane, for instance, whereas my Bluetooth keyboard, you can't use that on a plane. So is their market more of a, you know, a desktop replacement then? That's really the big question because you can't make a desktop replacement with a tablet device, so to speak. I've also noticed that screen resolution has gotten larger comparatively to my Slate. The screen has gotten smaller. For instance, my Asus Slate is a 12-inch tablet. These new Samsung and Acer devices are all 11.6 to 10.5 screen size which matches the Surface Pro. You're losing screen real estate while you're increasing resolution. So people with bad eyes are going to see these really, really tiny icons and whatnot. Well, with Microsoft dropping the price by $100 on their tablet, what does that do to a market as a whole? Are we you know, seeing the impact of, of Surface Pro 2, the rumored Haswells, or <laughs> is this just a stagnant market? I think it's a little bit of a stagnant market, but as we know from regular computer hardware, like the new processors come out, once they hit the market, there's a price drop on the old ones to move stock and get them out of the way. And that's really the best time to buy second generation stuff. Now with a Haswell tablet on its way, and if they follow the same mentality as before, where we have these 1080p white box tablets that are sold to everybody. Right. Well, if we have a white box Haswell based tablet that's sold to everybody, then everybody's going to be dropping stock and moving to this new platform. Now, I've used Haswell before, and the real benefit of Haswell is kind of memory speed and power efficiency. Right. Now, power efficiency, I think, is what I was kind of looking for, and that's why I've held off on buying a Surface Pro. Well, that and price to performance is a little crazy. I think we all expected to see, you know, maybe double or even three times the battery life. I mean, that may be optimistic, but certainly a boost well, again, a lot of people compare them to the iPad, and the iPad has, what, 14 hours of battery life? Like our my TF700 will last for like two days if I just kind of randomly use it to check email here and there. Right. So having a Slate device with a longer battery life is going to make those reviews from those bad reviewers that link these two together, it'll make it look a little bit better. It'll also get a little bit more use out of it, but 
in reality, that's only idle performance. Mm-hmm. You know, once you start really using the devices, the battery life's going to go down. It's going to be more like a regular Ultrabook device. Yeah, we're experiencing that with, you know, even our phones today. So I don't know why that's such a surprise to people, especially when you market these things as entry-level gaming boxes and really multimedia consumption machines. I mean, that's a lot of battery power and, and pretty screen-intensive processor and graphics especially. So the interface is the one thing that I'm concerned with in terms of tablets. Microsoft wants the world to be touch-enabled, which it's kind of strange because they sell the Surface, but then you have this keyboard dock that it'll go into, mm-hmm. and just about everybody has one of those. Asus, who has been somewhat of a pioneer in this whole tablet market, is moving toward an Ultrabook-style machine that has a touch interface, as we've seen with the new Vivo. I think that is really where tablets are going, which kind of tells me that the market isn't ready for a full-on slate-style tablet. We need to have the entertainment tabs, which are the iPad and the Transformer, right? and we need to have Ultrabook-style, where we have a tablet that will slide into a dock with the keyboard and make it into an Ultrabook, or one that you can remove and use as a tablet touch device if you want. But those all-in-one style machines that are mostly a laptop that you can remove is really, I think, where the slate needs to be. And then we have these entertainment tabs, which are basically big phones. No, that's a little harsh, even if it is true. But I, I think differentiating between the two is what's important. And I think that's why we get so much sticker shock when we look at a transformer style or even an iPad and then look at the slate and it just is it's painful the difference in cost and there isn't a lot of middle ground once the reviewers finally realize that and put that into their reviews I think the market will turn around and Microsoft won't have to you know undercut everybody to try to get their overproduced tablets out the door <laughs> well it's a good thing Microsoft has deep pockets And I do think it's a great machine. It just struggles to find a niche. And I think maybe you're right. Maybe it is all marketing. But time will tell. We'll see what the next generation brings. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes. If you have questions, drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Ninja Lane by subscribing to our RSS, now available on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter or join us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2013. Thanks for listening.